So before, uh, or as Linda's coming up to read today's scripture, I just want to, <clears throat> excuse me, introduce um, the message today, except maybe I don't have that. Oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad to be among forgiving people. <laughs> so here we are about halfway between Mother's Day and Father's Day. We've been doing a, a series uh, for the past many Sundays on the family, and today's message is very much uh, part of that series, but today I want to lift up perhaps some family members or family uh, configurations that may fall below the radar sometimes, and you'll hear more about that in the message, but I want to explain the title, um, crucible, the word of, uh, the use of the word crucible Uh, In the title of the message, the word crucible means both a severe trial or test, which I think that's how we usually think of it, but it also means a container. Um, And it originates from a Latin word for a pot that was used to melt metals, and therefore a pot that needed to be able to withstand very high temperatures without melting itself, Um, which I think is kind of a perfect metaphor for family. We, we, as a family, we need to be able to be a container that can hold very high temperatures sometimes, don't we, without cracking. Uh, and in today's sermon, I'll be examining the crucible, the trial of some families whose children are born with significant impediments, um, children whom society ha- often casts as misfits or uh, rejects. Um, We'll also hear about how their parents' struggles shaped both the families and their children and our society as a whole. Um, To me, it's a message of hope and incredible inspiration. And just one final note. The word crucible also means, not sure why, but it also means, has a meaning of night lamp. The only thing I could think of is maybe at night when they were melting the meadows, you know, the fires may be cast alight uh, at, at night. I don't know, but I think in some ways a parent's crucible can also become a lamp into the darkness for us all. So let's listen to the word of our Lord. The first reading is from Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And the second reading is John 16:12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. 
For this reason, I have I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, St. Paul states that faith comes by hearing. The full verse is, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word around about Christ. But over the centuries, this snippet, faith comes by hearing, was taken to literally mean that those who could not hear were incapable of faith. And this was codified into the law in Roman times, in Christian times. Those who could not verbally confess their faith could not inherit property or title. In Leviticus, the holiness codes declare that only men with perfect bodies could become priests. No Down syndrome, no dwarves, no club thumb. Well into the 18th century, and this was not that long ago, if you think about it, it was widely believed that a physically deformed child was a result of the mother's perversity. Any parent of autistic children, any parents of autistic children are probably familiar, but you may not be uh, uh, unless you have an autistic child, that in the early uh, the, that the early theories of this disease, uh, this, this brain dysfunction, was caused by lack of maternal warmth. Thus, the term refrigerator moms was coined. Yes, and this was widely believed and supposedly supported by research uh, uh, that Bruno Bettelheim was one of the, a, a very influential psychologist. He said that autism was the result of the parents' wish that the child had never been born. And many people believed this. <sighs> what has moved us from these positions? How have we evolved our understanding? I will tell you what I believe to be the answer. Parents. Parents. The first archaeological evidence of religious observance among humans about 10,000 years ago was ritual decorations on a child's grave. And I find that so moving and so profound. Over the millennia, parents, parents have loved, nurtured, and championed their children, often against staggering odds. And we have all been the better for it. I've been reading a book that I'm going to refer to in, in today's message. Uh, it's, yeah, it's 700 pages, but it's actually quite fascinating and, and readable. Uh, it's called Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. And in the, in, in the book, the author explores the lives of families who have significant challenges, whose children have significant challenges from deafness to dwarfism. And by the way, did you know the word midget is considered a terrible slur? I didn't. Uh, um, among the little people, uh, among the community. We don't use that word anymore. Now I won't. Down, from, from families who have children with Down syndrome, families who have children with autism, schizophrenia, severe physical disabilities, and even families who have children who eventually turn to criminal behaviors. The author makes a very, uh, a very important point, I think, when he says we've come a long way 
in no longer blaming parents for their children's physical or uh, mental illnesses, but we still blame the parents when a child uh, evidences criminal behavior. Um, And though the book focuses on how families cope with these more extreme forms of difference, the author, Solomon, believes that, and I agree, encountering an unexpected trait or two in one's child is a universal part of parenthood. He says, he said in an interview, I have yet to meet anyone as a parent who has not from time to time looked at their child and said, where did you come from? Who are you? He goes on to say that the difficult part of writing the book was trying to understand the ways in which these very differences had something in common. Um, And his underlying theme of the book is that these differences taken individually are isolating, can be very isolating, but that together they have the potential to be very unifying. He continues by saying, when I started looking at these families, I thought loving someone and accepting someone are two very different things. My parents always loved me. But it, this is still the author talking. It it could be me talking too. It just took them a little while to accept me. Uh, And actually, all of these parents had to struggle to accept their children. And he, the author, began to think that all parents at some level have to struggle to accept their children at some level. Our children are always full of surprises. Uh, This morning... We, we heard from the prophet Khalil Gibran, uh, the poet, I should say, Khalil Gibran, a poem that uh, talks about that. Our children are not our children. They come from and through us. They come from God through us. Uh, our children dance their way into our hearts, and, and they create strange and beautiful edifices there. Not always comfortable, but significant and profound. The author of the book said that the happiest families he interviewed were the ones that were able to move past their pain, their frustration, and often their anger about their child's condition into acceptance. And even they were even, some of them, able to find meaning in the challenges. He said the families that had looked at these experiences and acknowledged how unbelievably difficult they are and how painfully they can be, how painful they can be, but nonetheless have found meaning in the experience were the ones that were doing better. Not all parents get to that. He said, I was amazed that for many of these families, experiencing difficulty had intensified rather than undermined parental love. And sometimes those very circumstances give birth to a parent's calling. Many of you may know the story of Temple Grandin, who I think is one of the most uh, public figures of autism, public faces of of autism. She was born with severe autism in the late 40s, and yes, her mother was called a refrigerator mom and was blamed for her daughter's uh, condition. But her mother fought, so therefore her, her mother fought the battle on two fronts. She had to fight to say, I didn't do this, but more importantly, she fought fiercely to defend her daughter and to get an education for her. And she, in many ways, was groundbreaking, uh, broke ground for all the parents that followed. Um, uh, 
um, a similar path. She fought to free the mind that she knew was trapped inside a functional disorder. And her child, Temple Grandin, went on to very great things indeed. That's one mother's calling to defend and advocate for her child. And that had a huge impact on autism awareness and advocacy. Many of you may also know the story of Harriet Shetler, who, uh, or, or you may not know her by name, but you know of her organization, who in the 1970s, uh, frustrated with the lack of services available for her schizophrenic son, met with another mother of a young schizophrenic son in the 1970s to talk about their challenges raising these very challenging children. And out of that meeting, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, uh, was formed. And this is now an international organization with thousands of chapters in uh, communities and states. Um, I think it's national, international. I know it's national. It offers support to the mentally ill and people living with them. It promotes research and education on mental illness, and it even lobbies governments on mental Ill health uh, concerns. And it was born out of a mother's desire to help her child. I don't know how many of you have heard of the Cook Center. I hadn't until I read this book, and it was founded in 1987 by a small group of parents whose children had Down syndrome. All they wanted was a good education for their children. They knocked on hundreds of doors to find just one school that would welcome their children into its community. And they finally uh, just had to decide to build their own school, and they did. They started with two classrooms, uh, but over the years, the school grew into serving thousands and thousands of children with intellectual disabilities. In the time since the Cook Center was founded, the life expectancy for people with Down syndrome has tripled. Down syndrome people are now actors, writers. Many are able to live fully independent lives into adulthood. Why? The parents. <laughs> the parents. Uh, so the author of this book interviewed Tom and Karen Robards, who were co-founders of the Cook Center. Um, and in speaking with them, he asked, I think, a very profound, a difficult question. Mm. Excuse me. You, he, said, uh, he said, look, you've given your lives to this. This was 30 years later. Do you wish you'd never heard of Down syndrome? Do you wish you could make it go away? And the mother said... You know, for our son David, yeah, I wish I could make it go away. Because for David, it's a difficult way to be in the world. And I, as a mother, would do anything to make David's life easier, she said. But speaking for myself, while I would never have believed this 30 years ago, speaking for myself, it's made me think so much more deeply and appreciate humanity so much more broadly and live so much more richly. Speaking for myself, I wouldn't give it up for anything in the world. Meeting a challenge and finding meaning. Not all parents can start foundations. In fact, most parents' struggles are unseen and unsung. And to me, there's nothing nobler more grace-filled or more Christ-like than a parent tending a child. All of our children are born weak and vulnerable. And indeed, that is whom Christ calls us to serve. How much more so then when tending a child takes every bit 
of your time and strength and energy and creativity, every last reserve. Many of you know that part of my calling is to serve the mentally ill. And my new job, which I spoke about, uh, uh, working at a residential treatment facility for adults with significant mental illness, I love it. I'm very blessed to be there. And while I'm aware of my servanthood in that setting, serving the adults who live there, and I love that aspect of my work, I'm also aware that I serve in a very real way a population who doesn't live there and who I may never meet, the parents. The parents. Many of the adult residents whom I serve may never be able to function on their own, may never be capable of preparing their own food, remembering to take their medicine, navigating appropriate social interactions. They've often been chronically homeless before coming to us. In a very real way, they are society's cast-offs, misfits, runaways. We don't have enough housing for our chronically mentally ill. In the United States, 150,000 people with schizophrenia, not to mention all the other debilitating mental illnesses, uh, live on the streets. And many of them end up in the prison systems, which is not only inappropriate for their condition, but which lowers their chances for effective treatment. And behind every one of these stories are the parents. Are the parents. What parent doesn't want to know that their child is safe, well-fed, protected? I take a deep sense of peace in knowing that day by day, night by night, for at least a few parents, I can take the burden off their shoulders and help them find relief and perhaps the beginning of a sense of peace knowing that their child is cared for. When I was just starting school uh, for both pastoral training and and counseling, and I was meeting with a woman who I felt there was a strong possibility that she would never heal, she would never recover. And at that time, um, through my naive lens, I felt that it was my job to to heal people, (laughs) to, to, to get them well. And so I went to my spiritual director and I said, I'm really struggling with this. Is it even ethical for me to meet with her as a counselor when I don't think I can be effective? And he said, I love my spiritual director. He's very wise. He said, well, I bet there's two things that you're doing, no matter what. And I, I, you know, just waited. And he said, I bet you love her. Yeah. I do. And I bet when you're in the room with her, you're aware that God's in the room too. So that for me was a blessing of acceptance of what is that even by our presence, we may bring some meaning and value to those whose stories are very dark indeed. So where have we come? How far have we come from Leviticus And even a misinterpretation of St. Paul. So far from blaming parents for their different offspring, and after all, who isn't a little different? Their children with mental illness or physical disabilities or chronically debilitating conditions, far from shaming them 
shunning them, we are, I hope, closer to honoring them as the heroes and heroines they truly are. The light bearers that shine the night lamp into all our souls. Like the woman searching for her lost coin and the father of the prodigal son pining for him, even as he knows he may be sleeping with the swine, pining for his return to normalcy, to health, to life. So should we all constantly, unremittingly, be searching for the true soul in the midst of darkness, even the darkness of mental illness, even the darkness of crime, even the darkness of a tormented body that still yet somewhere harbors a single soul that Christ himself tells us is always yearning to be saved. These parents, even the parents here today among us, are light for all of us in the crucible of our human family. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are none of us perfect. (laughs) How true that is and how well you know that. And yet you love us unremittingly, unstintingly, generously. And for that, we are grateful and humbled. And we only hope that we can share some of your love with those we meet in our lives, particularly those more in need of it at different times of their lives. Help us help them rise to the challenges and build community and serve you always. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.